You know, unveiling is, the word unveiling is an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, I, we think of, uh, of maybe a, a new car or a renovation of a home. When are we going to see it? We wonder what's behind the curtain. We might meet someone and we ask, why are they so joyful? Uh, when we first moved to Wisconsin, uh, one thing that I always thought, what is it about this company? I went to Quick Trip and they would always say, see you next time. And I would think, nope, you, really, me? What's behind this? And so getting to know Quick Trip and kind of their culture, it's, it's really kind of fun. A revelation is an unveiling. It's the very first word in Revelation 1.1. Revelation is apocalypse. It means to unveil. And so in the book of Revelation, we see lots of symbols and future events but don't miss in the unveiling that it really is a discipleship manual, a discipleship book. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessing, you are blessed if you read it out loud, if you have ears to hear and apply it. And so, in the midst of all of the symbols and all of that that's here, there's something very practical for us to get our heads around. So let me just give you a review. If you're joining us, uh, sometimes they'll say on a TV show, previously on the name of the show, they'll bring you up to speed. This is where we've been. In chapter one, we see Jesus gloriously revealed, gloriously revealed. It's the very first vision that we get. And then we go to chapters 2 and 3, and we see Jesus right in the midst of his people, the churches. He sees, he knows, he, he has a name, a unique name for each of the churches. He holds seven stars. We see Jesus being the first and the last. We see Jesus being the one who died and came back to life again, like the choir sang. We see Jesus with this double-edged sword that speaks his word. And now, this morning, we switch to the throne room. In fact, this message is entitled this, Welcome to the Throne Room. It's the control room. I told the people in the prayer meeting, I said, if there's any message I want to nail in the book of Revelation, I want to nail this one, so pray for me that I'll be clear. The other ones will be clunkers. Just giving you a heads up. Just kidding. But in chapter 4... The, the focus switches from Jesus to God the Father, and then we're back to Jesus in chapter 5. This book is all about Jesus. It's about the, lamb's win the lamb winning. And as we go from 4 to 5, we now have heaven's perspective as we move forward in the book. We have heaven's perspective. Abraham Cooper was a prime minister of the Netherlands and the, a theologian. He has a very famous quote that says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And you see this. So here's where we're going. Chapter 4 and 5 serve as an introduction to chapters 6 through 20. It's kind of the door opening to future events and what is going on now in the heavens. This chapter, 
4 and 5 is the second of seven visions. It's the second. The first vision was in chapter 1, where we see Jesus gloriously revealed. But in vision 2, we see chapters 4 through 7, and introduces us to the final conflict with the forces of evil. The end which will see the Lamb winning, and the enemy of our souls finally consigned to where the Lord will throw him, and that's the lake of fire. So in this message, we're going to bookmark it with seven and seven. What do you mean by that? We're going to look at seven symbols at the very front. I can't cover all of them, but we're going to give you seven symbols that are in chapter four and five. My idea is instead of going into the room right away, we're going to just say, I'm going to tell you, here's what to look for, here's what you'll see. On the back side of the message, we'll have seven, this is why it matters. Seven, here's how it relates in real life, how it practically plays out. And right in the middle, we'll read the text, and we'll come away with one clear point on chapter four, and one very clear point on chapter five. So I invite you to find a worship bulletin like this, and uh, just fill these out. There may be some digging that you want to do later. I think you'll get more out of the message if you make some notes. <clears throat> but let's start off with this, understanding why symbols matter. Some people may say, well, why, why, did, why is there symbolism? Why couldn't God just make it really clear? Because symbolism is used to speak about realities that are beyond human description or experiences. Picture language is used, awe and awesomeness. The word that is used is the word like, or appearance, or similar to. Not surprisingly, Jesus used parables, stories loaded with meaning that you often understand later. And you realize that there are deeper meanings. It's not to trick us or frustrate us, but realize the kingdom of God is beyond what we could ever think of. So the first one. The first one's a door. Right away in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to see a door. It's heaven's perspective. The last time we saw a door was last week in the church of Laodicea. That door was closed. Jesus was on the door, knocking on the door. But here, the door is open. It is heaven's perspective, seen in visions with repeated themes. The worship is theocentric, which means it's all focused on our heavenly Father. I was in the back when Tim was reading the call to worship from Isaiah and I wanted someone to yell out when, Tim, you read all those questions, who has given the Lord insight? I wanted someone to say, nobody! He stands alone. You will see that all bow down in worship and majesty before him. If you have loved ones that's departed, you want to know what their day is like? Chapter 4 will tell you. <laughs> Here's the second symbol. The second symbol is the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. It's, it's tied to authority. It's tied to lineage. For the, the reason why that's so important is from the lion, who doesn't want to follow a lion? A lion is strong. A lion has authority. 
We first hear about the lion in Genesis 49. Jacob's four boys. Jacob blesses boy number four, Judah, and he says, your brothers will praise you, your hand will be on their necks, your father's sons will bow down to you, and here it comes. You are a lion's cub. In the glory years of the people of Israel were all about David, the root of David. The ancestry of Jesus is clearly seen through the bloodline of David. Those were the glory years. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5.12 when he quotes Isaiah, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. And today, if you look up the symbol for the Israel people, the nation of Israel, you'll see what? The Star of David. A national symbol of Judaism. Don't miss those. Don't miss those. Those are the, we'll, we'll, we'll come in contact with those in chapter 5 when John looks around and he sees who can open the scroll. And the angel says, the Lion of Judah. The root, the root of David. Number three, this is so key that you don't miss this. This symbol is the lamb that is slain. The word lamb is an interesting word. There's two different words in the original language. But this word is used 29 times by John. One time in his gospel, 28 times here. Here's why it's a big deal. This use of the lamb is used figuratively of someone who is pure, virgin-like, gentle, and young. That nuance is important because it points you to the atonement, what they used for the sacrifice, that Jesus humbly died. Philippians 2 says this, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, he humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself and became a man. And there's all these lamb uses, uses in the uh, uh, in the book, in the Old Testament. Don't miss the lamb theme. Genesis 22, these are listed there for you. You can look them up later, but Genesis 22, verse 8, this was the lamb that would be provided. Isaac didn't need to be killed. There is the lamb in Exodus chapter 12, 5. Kill the lamb and put it on the doorposts, pointing to the slain lamb. There was Isaiah 53, verse 7, a lamb led to slaughter called the suffering servant. In John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus' cousin says, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus himself said, Sunday afternoon, Luke chapter 24, the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're, they're, they're downcast and Jesus hasn't shown them their true reality, hasn't revealed himself yet. He explains that this suffering of the Messiah had to happen, and he opens up the law and the prophets. Later that afternoon, Sunday evening, Easter Sunday, Jesus shows up. They think he's a ghost. He has something to eat. Luke chapter 24 says this, that the Son of Man had to suffer, and he showed them in the law and the prophets and the Psalms why the lamb had to be slain. Why? Someone has 
written this beautiful, beautiful poem about the lamb. You ready? Mary had a little lamb. His soul was white as snow. And anywhere where his father sent, the lamb was sure to go. He came to earth to die one day, the sin of women and men to atone, and now he reigns in heaven alone. He is the lamb upon the throne. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Number, uh, the, the, the fourth symbol that I want to tell you is the number seven means completeness, fullness. It, you'll see that, that the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns. And if you Google that or if you, you look for a picture, you might see this lamb and he looks really weird and scary. And I'm trying to process that. How do you communicate that to children? Is that, is that the king is like? No, everything about the king tells me that he welcomed little ones. Please let the little ones come to me. Let them come to me. The idea about seven eyes and seven horns is this. Seven eyes means he sees everything. He sees in you and he sees through you. And seven horns means authority. He has all the resources, all of them. Don't miss that. The fifth symbol is this. The fifth symbol is the scroll. The scroll is the inter-advent, grand storyline of, of history. What do you mean by inter-advent? Well, remember the first advent wreath that we have? We, we light the candles. First advent, right? Coming of a significant event. Second advent is King Jesus, and we confess this all the time, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The scroll is the inter-advent. We don't know what it is. We can't know definitely what it is. D.A. Carson, a former professor at Trinity Evangelical Free, uh, uh, which is E-Free Seminary, he says this, it's a scroll of blessings and curses, of judgment, of salvation and restoration. Judgment, seals, trumpets, bowls, lake of fire, salvation for all people through the door of Jesus and restoration. New heaven and new earth, scroll. Number six is this, thrones. Oh man, are there thrones. Oh, it's thrones encircled by thrones encircled by thrones. Thrones is used repeatedly. Only two times is it not about our Father and King Jesus. It's all over the place. God's people were Reminded again and again and again in the pluralism of that day and in the distractions and busyness of our day. There is only one. And on the throne, there are new songs. Listen for the songs. When we get into it, listen for the songs. New songs would always celebrate an act of divine deliverance or blessing. It always refers, or it will refer to the salvation of God preparing his people. This is a, a key theme. And what's the theme of this? What's the theme of the, of the songs? Mark 10, 45 says this. This is Jesus talking. Listen real good. This is him. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sing praises. Why? 
You were slaughtered for me. You paid the ransom bill for, with your blood. You ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people group. To do what? To be a kingdom of priests. Wow. But maybe the last symbol that really nailed me this week was the symbol of worthy. Being worthy. The idea means to weigh, to assign a matching value. Oftentimes as a pastor, I will have people say this, well, I hope I've done good enough. Good enough, kind of like my good outweighs my bad. And so maybe I'll get in on that. I'll maybe get in through that. The word worthy means to be a balancing scale of truth. And, and you get this idea of like, so who is worthy? The, the worthiness is like, who's going to put everything back in line? How do you redeem the earth, pastor? Who can do that? The idea of being worthy came, was ripped off right out of the book, uh, the, the Roman world. People would yell out when the emperor would come, they would say, you are worthy. You are worthy. How do you redeem the earth? You have to have someone forfeit their life. You have to have someone who is so perfect willingly give his life and live a perfect life. And so you'll see. You'll see John. He goes through the hall of faith. Who can open the scroll? Think Abraham or Moses could pull that off? Think sweet Queen Esther could? Think King David or Elijah or Ruth or even Jesus' mom. No offense to his mom. She couldn't do that. And John wept and he wept and he wept. And behold, the best way to translate that in the English language is surprise. That's really what it means. It was one surprise, but it was a second surprise. Who can open this scroll? Watch. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter, uh, Romans, Revelation. I think we'll go to Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I invite you to follow along. We're going to read it out loud, and the reason why we read it out loud is because those are the instructions. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Read this aloud. It's on page uh, 1064, reading in Jesus' name. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like emeralds and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around them, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you're worthy. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with a writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. Think completeness. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, life-giving Spirit, we have now entered your throne room, the control center of all majesty and grace. It is filled with praise. It is filled with beauty. And it is filled in awe and wonder. And like the elders and the angelic beings and the church triumphant, we echo their voice and cry, holy, holy, holy.
We can only enter because of Jesus, the slain lamb for us and his blood. Oh, please protect us. Please protect me, Lord, from merely reading these words, hearing these words, and not having them penetrate my heart, our hearts, with the unmatched awesomeness of who you are. These verses have blessed your beloved women and men over the centuries. In those churches, John wrote to and countless women and men who have hung on to those promises since in churches all around the world. Cradle in our hearts this vision of you, our Holy Father, seated and our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, our brother, our friend, our conquering King Jesus. Let us never forget that and come back to that again and again. Amen. So chapter 4, we see our Father on the throne. And as a result, we sing praises. The immediate response of those who, 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 who understand this is they sing praises. You might think to yourself, nobody does that. Well, actually, they do. Acts chapter 4 tells us that Peter and John were in prison and they, and they sang songs of praises. Acts chapter 16 tells Paul and Silas, they sing praises. We support this. We state this every communion Sunday. We, we state this publicly. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now you see it. This isn't the only place. I printed there in your worship bulletin. I'd invite you to dig more when you get home. There are other places in the Bible that we see this. We see this in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel chapter 7. And, and, and how do you describe what is indescribable or incomparable? The word that's used is like. It means having the same place and time trying to describe the uncomparable. How do you get your head around that? Well, there's, there's tension. It's like trying to explain the Trinity. No matter what illustration you use, it breaks down eventually, doesn't it? It's like trying to explain the incarnation. Now, wait a second. He's both God and man? It's like trying to explain the resurrection. Dead and alive? His own friends didn't believe it. His own brother James didn't believe it until Jesus met him. It's like trying to get your head around someone who the Holy Spirit has changed their lives. And you say, that person's not the same anymore. We can live in mystery. That's okay. That's okay. That's not a cop-out. That's reality, friend. Worship is the central human activity because we are made in the image of the creator, the king, the holy one. Corey Tenboom, who was a World War II Holocaust survivor, she said, there is no panic in heaven. No problems, only plans. Holy is his nature. We sang the hymn, great hymns, Karen. Thank you for nailing that this week. 
Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy is emphasis. But when we say holy, 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 that's a superlative, meaning to the highest degree. And in Isaiah chapter 6, what we learned in Isaiah chapter 6 was this. The seraphim ran out of words. They ran out of words. How are you going to put that into words? I don't know. Holy, holy, holy is him. Now, now here's, here's the, between the two chapters, God's plan has always been, always been to make things new, to restore Eden. Who can do that? Who has that on their, in their resume? John deeply understands the DNA embedded in all of us. Who can open the scroll? He wept and he wept and he wept. It has to be a person. It can't be an angel. The angel says, he looked and he said, the Lion of Judah. But notice, notice who John sees. He sees not the lion, he sees the lamb. I saw this picture and um, I don't know if you can see it where you're at. And, and uh, Alex, I don't know if we can do this, but can you drop the lights just a little bit? If you're listening online, I just want to invite you to um, uh, watch this on, online. And I love this picture because what you can't see right here, that's a lion. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He sees both and. And that connects to the second point. This is very important. The victory of the lamb is accomplished by the sacrifice. The vi- excuse me. The victory of the lion is accomplished by the sacrifice of the lamb. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 29, it says that he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself. The verb uses a passive voice, meaning not as a milk toast, but willingly. Think of this when Jesus was in the garden. And they arrested him. Good friend Peter takes out his sword, slices off Malthus' ear. And didn't Jesus say, I could command my angels, a legion of angels. If you have a little one or a grandchild, you know the best way of illustrating this? Go to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and watch Aslan being bound on the stone table. And you will say as a grandpa or a grandma, he could bust out of that anytime. It is the lion of Judah who willingly is crucified for us. And the worship, the worship that starts with the elders, that 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 goes to the angels, countless. Myriads of angels. And then every living being worship him and adore him. Don't miss this. The victory won by the lion is accomplished by the sacrifice of the lamb. Sometimes we think it's force to make the world come into line. We think of the lion. Other times... We want to escape and just be removed from the brokenness 
of this world. Billy Graham said to Greg Laurie, he said, if I could do all my life over again, I'd talk about the cross and the blood of Christ because that is where the power is. Clearly, Christ is on the throne. And so we come to the seven practical things, the seven practical discipleship questions. Scotty Smith wrote a book called Everyday Prayers. I enjoy his writing. He had these seven practical applications for followers of Jesus. How do we take vision two? How do we take this message and live it in our lives? Seven different responses. Ready? First of all, for the, those who are persecuted and suffering, we are to be deeply encouraged that we can endure all things on behalf of him who bore all things for our redemption. Jesus understands and is near the brokenhearted. Number two, cold-hearted people who hear this message, they're invited to be renewed in their affections for Jesus, whose own love for them is their rebuke. Let them ponder the news of Jesus being slayed. Number three, for religious skeptics, they are reassured that Jesus is indeed God's Messiah. The one born in Bethlehem is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he is both God and man. Number four, for those who are fearful, they're given confidence to see who really controls world history. There's a reason for hope. Number five, for those of us who feel outnumbered in depressing and heavily Rome-dominated world, and in today's postmodern world, with spiritually toxic work environments, life environment, school life, and family. They are made aware and reminded one more time, we're not a minority. Rather, we are a part of an unaccountable, uber-global community of worshipers. Take that to the bank. Number six. For those who are deceived by false teaching and who are spiritually dead, they encounter worship that is in spirit and truth, and therefore pure and graciously life-giving. And finally, for the whole church, this chapter and chapter 5, we're called afresh to live with confidence and passion and joy that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and the great I Am is coming quickly. Are you ready? Let's stand. We've got one more song we're going to sing.